0: Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. Joining me to help manage the questions is Grace Barnett from the Compass office. Hello, Grace. Hello. These are unprecedented times, and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists, and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in a good society after Covid-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in a live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. This week on The Compass Podcast, it's bloody complicated, we are joined by Matthew Taylor, CEO of the Royal Society of Arts. Matthew is a friend of mine at Compass. I have huge respect for his intellect and experience, which we're going to try and unlock as as much of as possible in the next 60 minutes. I look forward to every call, but I particularly particularly looking forward to this one. As ever, I'll ask our guests a few questions, and then it's over to Compass members to put their points and their questions. So, Matthew, we always start with this. Welcome. Tell us where you are, but particularly tell us how you are.
1: So I'm in Clapham, in uh, the uh, second spare bedroom, which has really been my office or den for the last few months, Um, and where I record my own podcast from. And I'm okay, I guess. Yeah, I'm kind of slightly in between things because I've just finished writing a a book and I've sent it out to people for comments, and I've given them till tomorrow to come back to me. So then I'll have to address their comments. So kind of slightly, kind of in the kind of slight limbo because when I've got the book finished, I'll have to think about what the next project is. And I'm back to work, and you know, I've been in the RSA a long time, and I won't be there forever. So I'm kind of really focused on how we make sure the RSA, because we've been through a strategic review, how it, it moves to a different stage. I want to leave it on a high. And at the risk of being Macy, I'm a bit worried about West Bromwich Albion because, of course, the thing is, my football team's been promoted. And, you know, those, anyone who studies happiness will understand that there's two different types of happiness. There's a kind of happiness, which is when you're asked to describe your kind of existential state. And then there's happiness when you're actually asked to describe how you feel day to day. And for, this is just an insight for people who aren't football fans. When your team gets promoted, your existential happiness goes up because you're proud that they've been promoted and you feel a warmth about that. But your day-to-day happiness declines dramatically because, of course, your team is now in a division where it's not very good and it loses nearly every game. So I'm proud that my football team's been promoted, but I look forward to Saturdays of misery. I won't watch Match of the Day for a whole year now because it'll just be miserable. So um, that's all the little bits of my life put together for you now.
0: Okay. Um, My team got relegated, so medium to long term, I'm going to be incredibly happy because we'll win more games. Charlton will do very well next season. Every Saturday will be a joy for you. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. Just tell us, what's the book about?
1: So the book, I edit a series of books for uh, Thames and Hudson called the Big Ideas Series. Uh, You know, they're all called things like, is democracy over or can capitalism work or what is gender or should we all be vegans and uh, having kind of edited lots of books in the series they finally asked me to do one so I've just written a book called do we need to work mm-hmm. and and it's kind of important to me Neil, because I've written another book I've been writing for 10 years and um, which there is not a publisher of non-fiction books in the western hemisphere that hasn't read it and rejected it and that's been a kind of slightly demoralizing experience so this book, which is only 17,000 words, even though it's only 17,000 words, and even though it's my specialist subject work, I kind of got really uptight about it. And, and I've written it, and my wife, who's very loyal to me, the, uh, and oh, by the way, who he says hello to you, Neil. Uh, she likes it, but she might just be nice to me. So I'm waiting for the comments to slightly abate your breath, and then I'll change it, and then I'll get it off. And if it gets published, even though it's only 17,000 words, and it is a book with lots of pictures, a book with pictures, that's the only way I can get my stuff out into a bookshop. Uh, I, I will have a sense of achievement about that. it makes me feel slightly less bad about my massive book of social theory and political and progressive politics, which, which is sitting under my bed gathering dust.
0: It'll, uh, every book, uh, and I'm sure by yours, will, will have its moment. And what's the answer? Do we need to work, Matthew? Yes, we do. Not for some
1: of the reasons that people give. We don't necessarily need to work in order to generate revenue because you can generate revenue from other places and there have been times when we haven't generated revenue from work you could should generate more revenue from environmental taxes for example we don't actually need to work i don't seem to generate profits because as a google and facebook show you can make an enormous amount of money from relatively small number, small amount of people so i don't think government finances and i don't think capitalism actually are the things that require us to work i think the division of labor is what requires us to work you know the fact of the matter is you know when we in pre-industrial ages peasants grew their, you know they planted crops they ate those crops they built their own houses they tended their houses they were well, largely not entirely but largely self-sufficient you know if you think about our average day we we probably directly and indirectly rely every day on tens of thousands of people to to make our lives normal so someone's got to do that work and robots aren't going to do all of it so yes we do need to work because the division of labor is what brings us the fruits of modernity and i don't think we're going to want to give those up but the question is does work need to feel like work and so what i do in the book is i explore the kind of generic reasons why i think work feels onerous and uh i offer three so the first is control so the, the sense of being controlled, uh, what Elizabeth Anderson, the American philosopher, calls private government, the sense that when you work for an organisation, it can tell you what to do, but you have no kind of rights of accountability or whatever. Secondly, competition. The idea that the purpose of activity, and this isn't, obviously know, you know, just in the private sector, but in the public and third sector as well, that all we're really ever doing is competing. And I think that that is demoralising because in the end, nobody, you know, As John Kay once said, nobody ever lay on their deathbed and said, thank God I raised the shareholder value. You know, we want to do things for a purpose. And competition is fine, but it's got to be competition in pursuit of a purpose. And too often in organizations, competition for the sake of competition is what the focus is. And I think that's dehumanizing. And then thirdly, consumerism. And this refers, of course, to your own book, Neil, uh, which is that, that kind of thesis which, you know, you know that people like Daniel Bell... Uh, 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 argued and that you argued as well, I think, to an extent, which is that the shift from our identity being based on production to our identity being based on consumption involves the kind of Faustian pact, which kind of says that work may be shit, but at least I can buy nice stuff, you know, and, and that is, again, I think, pretty dehumanizing. So what I explore in the final chapter of the book are the kinds of things that you might do if you wanted work not to feel like work.
0: Brilliant. Okay, well, well, what we'll do is when it's out, we'll bring you back to discuss that, um, and we might get someone like John Crudders to come and talk about it with you, or, you know, some, uh, some, maybe some basic income people or whatever. That sounds brilliant. Tell us a bit, Yeah, see, John,
1: John, I must just make this point about John. John fundamentally... I don't know where... I mean, I'm really fond of John. I've known him for a long, long, long time. He's brilliant. But he, he has this habit of saying that anyone who supports universal basic income, like I do, doesn't believe in the dignity of work, and that's completely... Codswall up to be honest because as you know, proper universal basic income, not the kind of anarcho idealist ubi when we're all kind of fishing in the morning reading Plato in the afternoon and all the works so not i don't mean you know fully automated luxury communism i mean a real practical ubi like they have in finland it's fundamentally there to strengthen work incentives yeah. and also to enable people to make work choices it's not an anti work policy at all and john's very intelligent and it kind of slightly gets me down that he spent so many years misportraying ubi i mean there are people who support ubi who give john plenty of ammunition for that position but it, it isn't a reasonable position
0: and if john's listening i think he i think you know we need to recognize that he's moved some way on that um, and i think oh right, he's, okay. he, he's possibly more more sympathetic or at least open to the conversation but that's what happens us- when
1: you get that's what i'm saying you get old you're having arguments that changed 10 years ago you know it's like
0: <laughs> what can i say it's why we need to get away. Um, so just tell us a bit about your work life. So people can locate you, Matthew Taylor. You're now the chief executive of the RSA, which you've been for a, for a while and very productively. You know, just, just talk people through your political life about how you got to that point and what you've done so they can see where you're coming from, Matthew.
1: Okay, really briefly. Uh, so I don't know. I... Um, a few kind of key moments where i suppose i think where you know like most people i, I kind of think i am where i am by accident but uh so i'll, I'll describe one critical moment for me uh which was 1981 and I, I think i'm right in saying you know you as you get older you kind of you create mythologies about your past so maybe i'm just completely wrong about this someone in the chat will tell me but i think i'm right in saying that the same summer of the Australia, the, the famous Australia-England-Ashes series, the Botham and, and Willis series, was also the summer when the Labour Party chose its deputy leader, between Dennis Healey and Tony Benn. And the reason that is important for me is not just because I remember that summer and I remember the cricket, but also I was a Bennite and I was out campaigning for Ben. And I was sitting with a friend of mine called Richard Lee, who I think last I heard of him was working in Southwark. But anyway, uh, Richard and I were sitting side by side. We'd been decorating a house, actually, my, my student house. And we were watching the Labour Party conference. And I remember, I don't know whether Richard turned to me or I turned to him, but one of us turned to the other and said, you know, if Ben wins, it's all over, don't you? And at that moment my kind of youthful radicalism just fell away like a kind of a, a, a snake shedding a skin. You know, I just suddenly thought I'd been campaigning for Ben because I was kind of knee-jerk left winger. I was young. And at that moment, I realized that if Ben won, the Labour Party was going to be out of power for a very long time. Of course, the Labour Party was out of power for a very long time. But, you know, I think the Labour Party would have completely disintegrated as it nearly, nearly did. So that was a kind of really important moment for me because that was the moment at which I stopped being an instinctive left winger, which I had been up to that point. You know, I just had that kind of youthful thing that you have, which is whatever the most left wing position is, well, that's the position I adopt because I'm young and radical. And that was, so I was an old fogey. You know, at the age of, I don't know, 21, I, for the first time, abandoned the left and became a reformist. And so that's kind of my political positioning has ever been been defined by that, because... For me, that was a moment when I thought, actually, what's the point of having a radical Labour Party if it's never going to win in the election? So, you know, and that goes on, that's all. Um, uh, and then I kind of neithered around and didn't really make much of my life um, in career terms. And then I kind of unexpectedly got a job with the Labour Party in the early 90s. And then I wasn't really doing particularly well at the Labour Party. I was thinking of leaving. Really, I was a bit lonely, and everyone knew that. Everyone, everyone the Labour Party knew each other from Labour students. They were probably you know people you'd know, but I didn't. I came in outside. Didn't really know anybody, so I felt a bit miserable. And um, uh, and then I got a double promotion um, because the director of policy left. He was called a guy called Roland Wales. He left, I think, because he didn't have much sympathy with the Blairite project. And they had to find a replacement. I remember writing to David Miliband, who was uh, head of policy for Blair, and saying, look, I, I'd quite like to be director of policy. I was working in the campaign team. I was two levels below this. And they obviously looked for someone else. They couldn't find anybody else. And so I, got, I didn't get a reply from David until the day before the thing, when someone said, yeah, okay, you, you, you're the Blairite candidate. So, oh, right, okay then. <laughs> so, oh, actually, it's worse than that. The day before that, I, got, I, I had man flu. I mean, I was really ill, but it was man flu. I got a phone call. Will I go and see Peter Mandelson? So I had to go and see Peter Mandel. So I was feeling very ill. And I think he was just a kind of interview and he interviewed me. And then I had to go and see Tony. I had to go to Tony's house in Islington and he had to kind of interview me. And then they decided I was a Blairite candidate. It all happened about 24 hours. And then they had to go to the NEC to vote for me. And that was the closest Tony ever came until late on to, to lose a vote at the NEC. It was incredibly close. And I think it came down to Tom Sawyer, who was the general secretary, came down his casting vote because the union's, who always really hated me and still hate me. I, I I don't know why, really. I quite like unions. But anyway, they always kind of hated me, and they hated me then as well. I don't know what it is about me. but um, And they tried so hard to stop me, and they didn't. Anyway, so I then became director of policy. I, therefore, was quite senior in the 1997 campaign, which is kind of good for your credibility. I then stayed at the party. I redesigned the party's democracy a bit. I went to IPPR. IPPR for five years. Fantastic time there. Great time. Rebuilt it because it was slightly in the doldrums because so many of its stars had gone into government when Labour got into government. Eventually, on the third time of asking, I went into number 10. Uh, I was there from a year before, uh, from 2004 to 2003 to 2006. Helped to write the 2005 manifesto, which I'm quite proud of. And then I went to the RSA, and I've been at the RSA for 14 years. So there we are, and I guess intellectually, very briefly, my kind of progression has been that very early moment of deciding that I wanted—I was a radical, but I was a radical who wanted to be part of something that was, had power rather than just, you know, activist symbolism. You know, I, so I, you know, I've always believed I am deep down a radical, but I'm a pragmatic radical who wants to who wants to make a difference. And then I guess the other little journey I've been on, going to the RSA, is I've become quite disenchanted with the kind of old ways of which i thought about change you know i don't really think that change is now all about pamphlets policies and and articles in the guardian i think it's more complex and you know uh, in ways that i'm sure we'll talk about neil so that's why we went to that's why i went to the rsa which is a, a peculiar organization when i joined it and and a wonderful organization, but it, it offered me a way of thinking about change and pursuing change. And it's been really hard work, and I haven't cracked it properly. But I think we are a really interesting organization, and quite unusual, and, and that's been fun.
0: Yeah, unusual uh, and unique and quite special. You reminded me when you, in your little tour around your political life, Matthew. And one of my most liberating moments was exactly that time there was an article in the New States, in the New Socialist, you'll remember it, called Benism Without Ben. And I remember reading it and the relief to think that you could have a radical politics which weren't actually aligned to someone who you didn't think was ever going to, um, uh, you know, gain, win and use power effectively. Um, uh, and we've both been on the same track. And, and there's a bit of we'll come back to Corbynism in, in, in a while, maybe. So just, just um, one, one bit that just is useful for, for people on the call tonight and on the podcast later in the week. Uh, You with me were the kind of, you know, two of four instigators of Compass back in 2003, the others being Michael Jacobs and Tom Bentley, Michael from the Fabians and Tom Bentley from Demos, and you were at the LPPR then. I mean, just just so that people understand some of the roots and origins of it, what do you remember of what we were trying to do then in terms of our relationship with with New Labour before you went on to join Sony? You see,
1: Neil, this is, as I was preparing for today by which I simply mean thinking about it on the way back from Clapham Common Tube Station. Um, I I suddenly realised something. Um, This is exactly... There is a very, very similar thing going on now to what was happening then. Now, the big difference is we were in power then, right? But the split between radicals and... Moderates, reformists, pragmatists—whatever you want to call it—and you know, I, I can see people in the Zoom chat talking about, well, was Corbyn a Ben Was Ben You know, whatever. I mean, I don't. I, I try, try best not to get fixated on labels, but we came together, Neil, because we were critical of Labour in government in various ways. I think we were particularly critical of the centrali- centralism of Labour. We were. We we both accepted the David Marquand thesis, which was that Labour. progressivism had to be about bottom-up change of the heart not just top-down change from the head right and we we felt that labor was too centralizing too technocratic too controlling we thought that some political mistakes had been made i think you know trying to block Ken Livingstone, trying to block Rodri Morgan, the way in which, and this, um, you know, if you do get John Crudice on, this is my biggest criticism of John Crudice, great man though he is, is that he was there when Blair abandoned John Monk's and the modernizing possibilities of the trade unions in favor of mobilizing Ken Jackson to, to try and stop Ken Livingstone and Rodri Morgan. I'd love to hear John talk about that because I was rereading Tony's biography the other day because I'm doing a BBC, the BBC is doing a series, the Blair years, like the Thatcher years. And, So I was rereading it. And do you know an interesting thing about that? In that biography, 350 pages, look in the index, you will not see the name John Monks. And what's interesting about that is that John Monks was a really modernizing, really thoughtful General Secretary of the TUC. And the Labour Party completely flunked the possibility that John Monks offered for industrial partnerships. So anyway, we had criticisms about lack of courage around industrial democracy, industrial partnership, around centralization, around a kind of control mentality, right? But we did not want to throw our lot in with the kind of, you know, oppositionalist, you know, Blair's a traitor, blah, 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 because as already discussed, that's really not our style and not our politics. And so that was why we did it. We did it to try to keep a bridge between the kind of radical, radical progressivism and the kind of practical project of labour in government to try to make a difference without schism through, through building a bridge. You know, and as you know, the RSA for the last few months has been using this phrase, building bridges to the future.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and the point is, Neil, as I suddenly realised as I walked back from Clapham Common, this is unbelievably more... I mean, it's just as important now that you know since the global financial crisis that you have the Sanders, clinton rift you have the corbyn non-corbynites rift you have now i think the kind of <sighs> rifts and disagreements around kind of cultural politics and anti-racism which which we should get into because they're very difficult issues but i think in essence what i would say is they are about People who, for very understandable reasons, have abandoned the liberal democratic project and think liberal democracy is cannot be saved, and people like me who say, "Look, liberal democracy has been hypocritical. It's 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 never lived up to its values. It's yes, it's born in slavery and oppression, but yet its kind of its principles are still the right principles. Even you know, even if we have been so far from them, and unless we try to revive and renew liberal democracy." Well, what's the alternative? You know, what what is our alternative if we give up? And so it seems to me that this kind of rift, which is complicated and difficult and hard even to talk about, is even more visceral now than it was in two thousand and three. And in two thousand and three, we felt we needed to do it to keep Labour's energy going. Now I think we need to do it for a very similar reason. I think that we have a Labour Party that's very competent, very solid good people who I think know what they're doing. They stand in stark contrast to this unspeakable government. But I think there's a lack of flair. There's a lack of excitement. It's not connecting. And it needs to find a way of connecting because otherwise there's going to be a rift between the activist culture, which is young and demanding and idealistic and angry, and a Labour Party trying to kind of win power without... Ruffling too many feathers, and I just—I don't think you can sustain that for three years, four years. I, I agree. Let's
0: ju- let's come back to that, but let's come back to it via an appreciation of Blairism. We've said what we were critical of, but but it did have flair. It did have some level of intellectual rigor and some organizational structure. It was professional as well. And just kind of remind people, because I can see I'm really just glancing at the chat stuff, but people will quite rightly throw Iraq War and you know. Uh, commercialization privatization you know etc in but you and i were attracted to it at least in the early stages because it it, it did have something about it didn't it that we shouldn't throw away and we had a conversation last week Matthew with some people about what we should take from Corbynism because there was excitement and there was intrig- you know there were things to take from Corbynism but what should we take from Blairism um
1: well so I mean a couple of things look uh, you know iraq was a a a disaster simple as that you know and you know i i you know i wasn't there when the decisions are made and i worked on the domestic front but it's you know i'm not it doesn't matter you know iraq was a disaster so there we go um uh, many of the other things that labor got wrong it, it got wrong at a time when a lot of other people were getting that stuff wrong you know and there were a few people who said that global financialization was a huge problem and there needed something needed to be done about it, but not many. You know, there was new public management was in the ascendancy as a way of thinking about public. So, so yes, it's, you know, it's a fair criticism that Labour didn't step outside the kind of orthodoxy of the time and be more radical. I, I get all of that. And with the you know benefit of hindsight, uh, yes. And, and I've just said, Neil, that you and I felt that, particularly for me around industrial partnership, but also around centralization, that, that Labour made big mistakes. But, you know, I'm not going to do that thing that Androidonis does so effectively on Twitter and just list the 20 amazing things that Labour did. But, you know, there was the minimum wage. And there was, you know, I I think it's right. I'm right in saying that no country in history has reduced child poverty in absolute terms as quickly as Labour did. There was the investment in public services. There was the progress on LGBT rights, et cetera, the devolution to Scotland, Wales, London, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot. So I just, I'm, I'm not saying that because you know I'm going to say that, but it is so facile to identify the things that Labour did not see and should have seen and, and, and disregard all the other stuff, you know. In, in, I, I agree with that, so that's that. But look, you asked me to name something about Labour and I'll tell yeah. you the thing that I, I think that Tony had and that, and that we have to find a way to have. Uh, is that Tony liked... I mean, you know, Tony is a bit of an elitist, as we know, but he actually liked ordinary people in the sense that he kind of shared the instincts of ordinary people. And he his view was... What you had to do with progressivism is you had to start from where ordinary people were and you needed to work with them to try to create a more fair and modern country. And Tony was more a modernizer than a socialist. I, I freely admit that. But his view of a modern Britain was a fair Britain. It was a fairer Britain, a more inclusive Britain, a more liberal and tolerant Britain. So that's, that's fine, you know? And I think that the, the problem with the left is that, you know, we do tend to find it quite difficult to actually, like kind of ordinary people. You know, we care about them. That's one thing. But, but understanding where they're coming from and appreciating where they're coming from and saying, let's take it seriously that, you know, people don't want to pay higher taxes or they care about law and order or they love their country. And actually don't treat that as something which is awful that you've got to walk, walk, walk your way around or, 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 or ignore but but no you go okay fine that's how you feel so what is the progressive approach to law and order what's the progressive approach to taxation which start which 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 starts with that and i think that i'm not saying politics is simply about giving people what they want or pandering to what people want but i'm saying if politics is not about a certain amount of respect for what you know ordinary people, what you want to say is a kind of cross-section of people who aren't, polit- pe- aren't politi- polit- particularly political, wouldn't really think of themselves as right or left, just getting on with their lives. If politics doesn't really appreciate where those people are coming from, and what their concerns are, I think it's not really politics, actually. That's what I'd say. And I think quite often the left is weird. It's very political in one way, but it's not political in the other way, because once you abandon the idea that you have to try to engage people starting from where they are, I think you're not really being political, you're doing something else, you're campaigning, or you're being an activist, you're not really being political, because you're not really getting to the heart of what is necessary to generate change.
0: And I think in that, one of the most poignant, you know, examples of how we have to do that, is that, I mean, it's a binary, and and obviously the world isn't quite like this, it's much more complicated, but that thing, you know, the gap between the town and the city, the communitarian and the cosmopolitan. People do appreciate that the reality of their life is rooted in, in 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 different values and different places. And I guess the art of politics is to work out how we bridge. What's the narration of of a, of a of a way of overcoming those differences, which are more acute now than they've ever been? Do, do you think that's the case? Yeah.
1: I do, Uh, and I think there's a whole lot of conversation right now which is about trying to understand and excavate where people are coming from, particularly in those working-class places which have rejected Labour, and to understand what that's all about. And it's right that we're doing it. We have to think deeply about it, and I think that both my wing of the Labour Party uh, and other parts of the party... Just have did not ask themselves that question nearly enough for a very long time and uh, and we're paying the price for that and our starting point has got to be a deep curiosity about how the people we say we are on the side of feel about the world and see the world and where they have a sense of agency and and what is the politics that's likely to actually speak to them and their lives and I think part of the kind of culture pol what I crudely call cultural politics. Part of that, I think, is an abandonment of that because it's just too difficult in favor of a kind of purism, which is appealing because it it means you don't have to deal with the fact that, you know, ordinary folks don't necessarily see the world the the way you want to see them.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it, and the world is played out on Twitter, and it's how many followers you've got because you can, you know, you can play to those those binaries. And I think that's right what you're saying that, that it is displacement activity from the real political job. So let's go come back to that for a bit before we hand over to Grace and get some other people into the conversation. I mean, you said about saving our job is to save liberal democracy, and I kind of agree with that. But it, but it to me, it can't be the old form of liberal democracy, the kind of industrial clunky you know again top down that we railed against with 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 new labor we have to find 21st century versions of liberal democracy and I think you're trying to do that the RSA and compass are trying to do that whether that's you know through policies like ubi or systems like deliberative democracy etc I mean where do you think we're at in that kind of reinvention of of, of systems to give people agency
1: yeah so um I think there's a just well two things i think first i think there's an immense gap between kind of how progressive organizations charities progressive corporate organizations actually public sector organizations think about change think about engagement if they're doing well and 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 how politics works and how social media works and so there's this peculiar disconnect i I spend a lot of my time talking to people in all sorts of types of organizations, and they all want to talk about inclusion and engagement and trust and authenticity and purpose. And, you know, it feels like when you're in these rooms, well, we're all kind of progressive now, aren't we? That's good. And then you leave the room and you walk out on the street and, and, and you're back in the world of polarization, anger, pessimism. So there's, our political system has become detached in many ways from the day-to-day norms. Of quite a lot of of, of, of people, and, and I think that's something, you know, the, the, you know, one of the things that, Neil, that you and I share is that we're interested in constitutional issues, we're interested in central, you know, localism, and, and a lot of people on the left find that stuff very tedious, and it's a terrible mistake, because a big part of the reason we are where we are is because of the weakness of our democratic institutions and processes, and if you want one really stark example of that, which isn't from this country, but they're in this country, Joe Biden is going to have to win the American presidential election by 4% to win. He's going to have to win by, which is a very big margin because of the electoral college, right? So if you think that a Trump victory could be almost fatal, because particularly of the fact that it'll mean no more action on climate change, not to mention all the rest. So if you think a Trump victory would be, utter catastrophe for humanity it could happen not because of politics it could happen because the electoral college has remained unreformed and trump could lose by several million and still and still be president and you know we would not have brexit as i say as a brexit opponent if we had a proportional electoral system in this country you know so we on the one hand we've got to take these issues of politics and constitution much more seriously i'm as you know neil a complete deliberative democracy kind of bore and and i'm a a nerd so you know so for me the the first thing is we we have to renew democracy democracy is like a bicycle if it's not going forward it's falling over and it's not been going forward for a long time and so it has really badly fallen over the second thing however second thing i want to say however is that i also think and this is Uh, Our your lecture, which people can find online, it's also one of my podcasts. I, I think another starting point is us, is human beings. And I haven't got time to make this argument now, but I think the genius of liberal democracy or the genius of the Enlightenment, and I want to say in brackets that the Enlightenment was a project which is dripping with blood and oppression and slavery and hypocrisy and all of that, and I completely get that. But still, nevertheless, the principles of the Enlightenment, which I would say are three, autonomy, universalism and humanism or to put them more demotically freedom universalism and progress those are brilliant principles and what liberal democracy does is it finds a way of trying to manage the different imperatives that those three ideas bring try to balance freedom with universalism in order to generate progress and that for me is the only way you can really think about society working but to make it work we need a different kind of subject human beings have to be different and the one thing i said in my annual lecture and i'll finish with this is i've tried in my lecture to bring together two debates that don't ever come together one was this debate about liberal democracy and refurnishing and renewing it and is it possible and my fear is that however tainted and problematic it is there is no better alternative and secondly all that the revolution in the last 30 years that's been come about through cognitive science through behavioral economics social psychology anthropology understanding ourselves better and what i argued in the age of reflexivity is that for liberal democracy to work we need to understand ourselves better somehow because part of what's going on at the moment is that we as individual political subjects social subjects have uncontainable needs and desires, and the uncontainability of this is then articulated at a political and social level. So I know it sounds like a terribly abstract idea, but all that stuff, that cognitive science stuff, is real. It really has changed the way we think about ourselves. And if only we could take those insights into our existence as political subjects, we might then create a democracy that is based around who we really are as human beings. Anyway.
0: Well, I, I and I take that, and I think if you add that cognitive realization along with social media and a network society, you've got the recipe for something really interesting. And my last question before we do go to others is: the problem is that all of that, whether it's our understanding of ourselves and our connections and our ability to mobilize ourselves and others in in the world, and know, learn, and think and act hits up against this old political system. So we talk about 45 degree changes, emerging, bubbling up, whatever, and it needs the state and the vertical to support it. Well, there's, not, there's so little to hang your hat on, on the vertical. To, there's, there's no um, uh, holds, there's no cracks, or too few, in order to kind of accelerate and amplify and aggregate that stuff that you've just been talking about you know, how do we see our way through that catch 22 of the old system refusing to change and modernise and us just slipping down the kind of glass walls of the state because there's nowhere to, to grip onto?
1: So I'm getting distracted now by the Zoom chat. Um, uh, answer my question. I, I will answer your question. The, the, you
0: know, the constitution stuff and the party stuff. It's, it's so out of date, isn't it? Yeah.
1: So my answer to that is the thing that one of the other intellectual journeys I've been on, he said very pompously, is just to recognize the contingent nature of stuff. And that you know, the RSA we use a phrase to describe our approach to change. We talk about thinking like a system and acting like an entrepreneur. And I think that's the mindset we have to have, which is we have to understand and think and reflect on the systemic nature of of you know the way things are and you know there are brilliant thinkers like indy johar i think who are doing great work trying to understanding the deep structure of society i think we have to do that intellectual work it's really important but i think on the other hand we have to have a highly kind of entrepreneurial agile adaptive opportunistic approach to change which is that you don't know where it's going to come from you know we don't know in the end what covid is going to lead to for example and I think we have to kind of just stay alert and we have to have the organization, which means that when opportunities for change emerge, as they do, because we, we're in a volatile world, you have the capacity to grab the opportunity and then to see, and then to grab the one after it, and then to grab the one after it, and then to grab the one after it. That's all you can do. It's no good banging your head against a brick wall. You've just got to kind of hold it together. And when those opportunities arise, you've got to go through, as the populists have done over the last few years, they have an incredibly, you know, Putin's playbook, you know, it, which is never be predictable and never be boring. You know, and that, that what the populists do is they're constantly, constantly watching for opportunities to take forward their kind of project. And we've got to, I don't want to borrow anything else in the populist playbook, but we've got to be much more agile when opportunities arise to take a step forward and then know what the next step is and know what the next step is and know what the next step
0: is.
3: Hello, this is Grace from the Compass Office, interrupting for a moment. I'm lucky enough to come from a large and politically diverse family. We really did have the full political spectrum represented over Christmas dinner, but in spite of our differences, we still actually like each other. Um, I've always known, because of this, that politics should be more about listening and learning from the people we disagree with than shouting at them and fighting with them. And of course, I've definitely known for a long time that it really is bloody complicated. So I was so happy that when one day I discovered Compass quite by accident through their brilliant work on the Progressive Alliance in the 2017 general election. Since then, it's been absolute pleasure to once again be part of a political family where talking to people in different political parties, admitting that you alone don't have all the answers, is not just okay, but actively encouraged. So if you'd like to find out more about Compass, you can visit compassonline.org.uk. And now back to the conversation.
0: Oh, Grace, over to you. Bring some more people into this conversation.
3: Sure, okay, I've got a question from uh, Caridwen. Yeah, really, really interested in, um, it's kind of what you've just been speaking to, but you spoke to this earlier on. What really excites you as ways of building bridges across differences, whatever the differences are? What do you see as, as exciting ways that we can, we can, we can um, connect across differences?
1: Yes, yeah, thank you. And, 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 and that is, yeah, it is a kind of obsession of mine. In fact, I tried to do a Radio 4 programme, I, I did, I got, we did some programmes called Agree to Differ. And what it was based on was getting people to agree what they disagreed about. Um, and it didn't really work because I wasn't good enough. And also the guests ended up agreeing with each other too quickly for the 40-minute <laughs> <laughs> programme. So they dumped it. And then they've, and then... Much to my kind of misery, they've took, they have took the basic idea and they've given it to Anne McElvoy, who's making it work quite well, actually. So anyway, that's humiliating. Won a long line of personal humiliations. But anyway, uh, the point I'm making is that y- y- you've got to... One of the ways to do it is to try to have an honest conversation about what you disagree about. And that's how mediation works. So in my view... Listening is very important, and the, one of the ways to structure listening is to say, "Look, we disagree about this. You know, we disagree about your definition of white. I, mean, I take an issue now. You know, we de- disagree about the way you're defining white supremacy, for example. Okay, well, we would have a big row about that. We can call each other names, or let's 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 respectfully try to work out what it is we disagree about here. And in my experience, if you if you do work out what it is you disagree about you can normally make progress. And normally you find out you don't disagree about quite as much as you thought you did, which some people find threatening because they quite like disagreement. But so I, I think that there's a kind of process element to, to, building, uh, to, to building bridges. But the second thing is, is you have to really believe in it. And, and I believe that politics, I said this earlier, politics is about building coalitions um and that's the politics i'm interested in so i'm building bridges all the time because i'm always trying to create new coalitions i've spent my whole life trying to build new coalitions and, and 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 generally failing but i'm always open to it
3: thanks brilliant um next question's coming from kieran okay yeah so
1: my question was that you know political parties are relatively small beasts even allowing for the kind of corbyn surge and we know there are loads of skills and creativity across our society look at the response to covid19 how do we get how do we get those people involved people who don't want to join political parties but have skills creativity and you know i want to make the world a better place and are political parties increasingly an archaic structure yeah it's a great question kieran and you're speaking to something which kind of there's a certain amount of personal a Pain attached to it because I, I've I've always believed that political parties need to be agents for change in the communities that they operate in, and that that should be the starting point. And that the most successful political movements very often are those ones, um, progressive ones, are those ones which have very deep roots in the community and which are there first and foremost. This is the origins of the Labour parties, where Labour movement are actually there to help people change their own lives. They're not just about knocking on doors and getting members and raising money and getting an, a group of people into power. They're actually about working to make change happen you know, here and now. And I think that's the model that, that, that the party should have. And when I used to work for the Labour Party, I, I tried to push that idea forward. And in the end, I didn't make that much progress with it because in the end, the imperatives of organisation, the imperatives of door knocking and fundraising and membership, seemed to push out the idea and i remember i remember in 1997 you remember this neil one of the things that labor did that was really great and then it just completely fizzled out and i never understood why was when the new deal we you know the 1997 we had this policy the the new deal which was to fund welfare to work for using the monopoly profits of the of the the, um, nationalized industries and when we first did that what gordon brown's team did was they sent to every MP a set of things that they could do locally to be part of making this happen, how they could talk to young people and visit jobs. I don't know what it is, but but it was. the idea was this is not a policy that's just going to be coming down from the top. This is the thing that you as a local MP can really help this happen. You can make it happen. You can be a, a social entrepreneur, and it was great. And it happened for a few months, and I don't know whether it was civil servants or I don't know. But anyway, it was killed off. It never happened again. I thought that was I thought when Labour was in power, what we would what what we would do is continuously give MPs councillors tools to enable them to be change makers in their community, and we never did. And I think that's what policies need to do. So I don't think the party has to be a have hundreds of thousands of members. What I think it does have to have is members who are change makers in their community. And I think if you are a change maker in your community, you'll build people's trust and then you can take them on one side and you can say, how about joining the Labour Party? And they might like, they're quite likely to say yes, which is probably better than just knocking on the door as a stranger and say, when you put a poster up in your window. I mean, that is important, don't get me wrong. but So th- that's my view, is political parties have to be catalysts for change, not simply machines for getting people into power.
3: Thanks, Matthew.
2: Um, next, I'm going to bring in Anthony Barnett. Hi there, Matthew. And, uh, very interesting. I, I, I'm i just puzzling about what you were saying about the Labour Party because I completely agree with you about John Monks, marvellous guy, head of, running the TUC, obviously an ally, just left to, you know, uh, uh, just left just the spin, hang there in the... And everything you say about, you know, the capacity of Blair in particular, who liked people, all the positive things that the new Labour government did, and yet clearly it ended in failure. And it seems to me that there must be, that that something was going wrong, which wasn't about, uh, which you can't then say, oh, well, we just got to be practical and the leftists are all sort of headbangers, so let's be a reformist. Something went wrong. They had a project, which you know, I feel Starmer doesn't have. They did have flair around this project. And that, that story of what that's about uh, is absolutely central to the history of new labor and what went wrong. And it seemed to me that a whole lot of that project, especially with Blair, but in a different way with, with Gordon Brown, was about power. And, you know, writing his messages to Bush saying, we must run the world together when they invaded Iraq. And, and, and refusing, therefore, to, to precipitate the deep reform of the British state, which was needed to unleash all that energy from below, which then got wasted.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, Anthony, I, I totally agree. And by the way, a few weeks ago, you wrote a piece, probably for Open Democracy, I thought it was absolutely brilliant and you should put it in the Zoom chat. I thought it was a brilliant piece. I can't remember anything about it. I just remember when I read it, I thought this was a fantastic piece. So I think it was about the world now. Anyway, so thank you for writing that and I'm embarrassed that I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember it made an enormous impression on me. So I think you're right, entirely right and I think that this was what Labour failed at and this is what we have to remember is that I remember a few years ago when Ed Miliband was leader. Someone in Ed's office contacted me and said, you know, have you got any ideas for the conference speech? I'm sure they contacted Neil as well, you know. It was was kind of diplomacy, really. There's your piece. It's an amazing piece. I I said, look, here's a line I think Ed should put in his speech because I think one of the things that people worry about with Ed is they think he's a bit statist. And the line I said that Ed should put in the speech was, look, to the Labour Party conference, was, look, you know, there's an election coming. uh, And you think that, you know, if we win the election, we'll take power. Uh, And I want to say to you, that's not how it works. The way it works is we win the election. We win the opportunity to create power. We don't take power. We win the opportunity to create it. And I think that that you're absolutely right, Anthony, that, that there were lots of things that Labour got wrong, specifically Iraq, obviously, and policy ideas, and, of course, the awful melodrama of the Blair Brown stuff. But the political thing i think it got wrong domestically was not recognizing the need to have a project that was about structural change in order to empower people and we've talked about the elements of that one element would have been you know because if you remember the history anthony what happened was that will hutton wrote his book about stakeholder capitalism and tony made a speech about that which was a good speech and then i think murdoch in particular went bonkers about it and labor freaked out and the whole stakeholder capitalism thing was thrown by the wayside and so that really big project which should have been about you know taking best elements of the continental model and bringing you know industrial democracy industrial partnership that that fell and then secondly in the end they there wasn't really serious devolution within england you know it wasn't as bad as the kind of level of centralization we're seeing again right now actually but but there wasn't a genuine and really powerful attempt to empower of course there was the failure of the regional government initiative as well so there are excuses that can be made but nevertheless i think you're right and i think that what the lesson therefore for the party is that you know our project has got to be ultimately one of structural reform in order to empower people in order to empower people at work in their community uh, and And we we lost sight of that, I think, in the end, new labor felt the way to make change happen was to pull levers and, and you yeah, know, pull good levers. you know there were good levers that it pulled, and sometimes you do have to pull levers, but that part of the progressive project and and you know look it 's not a new argument i I mentioned earlier to Neil the David Marquins book The Progressive Dilemma, which is one of the most influential books in my political development. It was just all about this; it was all about how Labour constantly moves toward between this kind of notion of empowering and devolving and a kind of heart's view of the world and a kind of technocratic centralising lever-pulling view of the world. And, and, and so that's the, if I was going to take a political lesson from New Labour as well as all the specific lessons you could take, it would be that.
3: Okay, thanks, Matthew. Last, probably the last question we'll have time for is coming from Bryony.
2: Climate scientists say that um, we have 10 years at most to uh, avoid a catastrophe. So I'm wondering where you rank the climate emergency in your thinking. And I'm always struck in these um, webinars by the absence of any reference thinking about making alliances, any reference to XR, which seems to be full of courageous, lively um imaginative creative young people and i'm wondering why that is
1: yeah so wow brian it's such an interesting question it's actually something i think about a lot so a lot on the climate um, emergency you're you know you're absolutely right and you know this is why you know this trump this american election is so unbelievably important because we just don't have four years of um doing nothing and that's what will happen well no people will do things and and but but it'll be so difficult so much more difficult so yeah the climate emergency is absolutely central and i think it's an opportunity to talk about how we have to change in order to be able to live sustainably and the opportunities that provide. So none of that's a new debate. And you know, what I've learned in politics is that sometimes debates go on for years and years and years and years, and then suddenly they break through, you know? And we just have to continue to say that the climate emergency is absolutely the top priority and that the best way to respond to the climate emergency is through a progressive approach because you can't solve the climate emergency unless you're doing that through a commitment to equality and participation you can't you know that you you won't there's no way of responding i think without a, a progressive frame which is why i think it's going to be really hard for this government despite the fact that it's got a commendable policy in terms of its net zero target i think it's going to be hard for it to take it forward because it's going to involve shifts which will be very difficult to sell to the the base of the of the conservative party and to their friends in the kind of uh, in the media in terms of extinction rebellion you know, I thought exile's first uh, stuff last autumn was absolutely brilliant. I just I think it was last autumn. I took my hat off. It was clever, it was funny. it was you know, it, it was un- unbelievably fresh, and it had a huge impact. I, I worry now that XR, for whom I have enormous sympathy, I worry that they are playing the same tune each time, and that it's allowing people to caricature them. And I think that talking of building bridges, you know what we've got to do is to think about how you le- how does that energy flow in to the system There's got to be some thought about that and and that's hard because x r is a particular organizational form, and the kinds of hard choices that have to be made when you say look it's it's fine protesting and doing amazing things which are funny and clever and brilliant and but yet in the end, we've got to be winning people over and we've got to be influencing policymakers, that's always a very difficult moment for any campaign. And, uh, you know, so I I really, I I think Exile is fantastic, but I can see the organisational dilemma it has now, which is that each time it does what it does, there's more of a backlash. I'm not agreeing with that backlash, a bit of inconvenience, Newspapers not being printed for a day. I'm not kind of saying, oh, that's the end of civilization. How dare they? But I'm saying that each time it becomes easier to caricature it as being a bunch of middle-class young people uh, just buggering things up however however strong their views are for everybody else. And I'm not saying that's what it is, but that's how it is being increasingly caricatured. So it has to get to another stage, XR, and that's really hard particularly, as I say, because of its organisational form. So that's a, that's a bridge I'd like to build. I'd like to talk more to XR people and say, where does it go next? Because I'm just not sure that whatever the next thing you want to shut down is or the next disco outside parliament or whatever it happens, it's all great. But I, I worry that what it's ending up doing, what it will end up doing, if we're not careful, is just build a bigger bridge and kind of say, if you don't think this stuff is great, you're not really green. And I think that there's a lot of people... Who, who have more conventional ways of thinking about change, who are, who would be part allies in climate action, and we mustn't, just, we mustn't completely disillusion them.
0: So um, I think one of the big bridges that's been built, and, you know, Compass has done it a bit with its championing of Citizens' Assemblies over Brexit, and you've done it, Matthew, at the RSA, it's, it's not a, an accident that the biggest demand of XR is a Citizens' Assembly on climate Yeah, and
1: Church. I totally so, support that.
0: So, so I think, you know, there is a coming together of different people, you know, arriving at solutions. And that, that gives me hope. I get hope from lots of places. That's kept me doing Compass longer than you've been doing the RSA, Matthew. What, what gives you hope? What gets you out of bed? What gets you motivated? What g- gives you, you know, the, the the thought that things can get better? There's a frame, there's a song, wasn't there, called "Things Can Never Get Better." I <laughs> seem to recall. Go on, tell us, tell us where you get hope from, Matthew.
1: Uh, you know, uh, this is a trite answer, uh, Neil, but I, I, I don't really have hope in the sense that what i and what I mean by that is I, 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 I'm I'm really and this is. Something I talk about a lot when I'm talking about the future of work, I think prediction is a problematic activity because I think the very act of predicting the future disempowers us because it suggests that the thing about the future is to find out what it is rather than to create what it is. And so I've always subscribed to a line I think I first read in a Cornell book written by Cornell West and um, and and Roberto Unger, which is. It's not hope that leads to action as much as action that leads to hope. And so in the end, I don't really hope uh, because, as I said to you earlier, the world is so indeterminate, the contingency is so great. All all I can do is get stuck in, really. And it's it's being stuck in that, that gives me hope. A great day at work, talking to people who are trying to make change happen a great event where it feels to me that people have moved from an entrenched position and created interesting new space. It's, it's, it's stuff that happens reading a fantastic article, which like Anthony's gives a different light on things. So yeah, I, I'm not a hoper. I'm an actor. If that doesn't sound too something pious, pompous, silly, trite.
0: It doesn't sound any of those things And it's been really great getting stuck into this conversation with you, Matthew. Um, thanks so much for your time and your wisdom and your experience. Thanks to, to all of our members for being on the call um, and, asking, and you. asking some good, good, good questions. Um, next week, we're going to be discussing how we get electoral reform. It's an issue that's central to our political project and has come up today um, with Matthew. We want, we need to know how we're going to get there, not just how we're going to demand it, but how we're going to actually make it happen. Um, joining Francis next week will be Clima Jordan from Make Boats Matter, Darren Hughes, the CEO of the Electoral Reform Society, and Nick Baraker. from a a new organisation called Get PR Done. So I look forward to that. Um, In the meantime, before that, thank you again, especially uh, Matthew, thank you everyone. Keep safe, keep well, and you can either keep hopeful or you can keep getting stuck in as Matthew suggests. Take care, good night. Bye everybody. So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at Uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one you can tweet me at neal n-e-a-l underscore compass or compass at compass office and if you've enjoyed this week's episode please give us a rating it will help us reach more listeners in the future and it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too